This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm holding in my hands a durable power of attorney, which gives Jeffrey Epstein uh, the power uh, really over Wexner's money uh, and real estate. This gives Epstein tremendous power. This year, it was all about the new girls. The angels strutted their stuff down the runway, spreading their wings as... In the late 1980s, the man behind one of the most recognizable clothing brands in the world... Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. The annual spectacle always turns... ...would hire as his personal financial advisor a college dropout in his late 30s who had allegedly managed to slip out of a Ponzi scheme unscathed. I call him a criminal mastermind. Jeffrey Epstein would brag about only taking on billionaire clients. And I said I would only take you if you had a billion dollars or more. But as our team of ABC News investigative journalists poured through thousands of pages of SEC filings and other records. Oh, look at this. Look at this. It became clear there was only one key billionaire in Jeffrey Epstein's life. Leslie Wexner is very clearly the most important individual that ever crossed paths with with Jeffrey Epstein. He really hit the jackpot. And we set out to unravel the mystery. That is pretty different. I said, you're a financial manager. You know, I have friends that are financial managers, and they have a lot of clients. And he said, no, I have one client. I only need one client. And my client is a billionaire, and his name is Les Wexner. The idea that this person who has limited experience, no college education, is suddenly taking over money management for a billionaire, Mr. Wexner, that's virtually unheard of. Jeffrey Epstein spent more than 15 years as the personal financial advisor to Leslie Wexner. Now, one of Epstein's biggest clients for years was the CEO of L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, billionaire Les Wexner. Wexner said this Epstein would find his way into Les Wexner's inner circle, becoming the man that Wexner trusted with his fortune. Power of attorney is usually limited to a certain aspect. Uh, here, it's being used to basically hand over all of the keys to Mr. Wexner's treasure chest to Mr. Epstein. And with that apparent connection to that iconic brand, women across the country would tell us that Epstein pursued more than just financial gain. And then he was putting his hands on my hips and my buttocks and saying, let me manhandle you. So I I got extremely terrified of that. He has financial victims and he has sexual victims. In that sense, that's why I called him a super predator. I'm Mark Remillard, and today on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. How Epstein used his relationship with one of the world's most successful businessmen to catapult him into financial fortune. Chapter 4, Friends in High Places. Uh, New Albany's got this rolling hill. White fences were just, uh, you know, farmers. Uh, But you've got these massive million-dollar mansions uh, tucked away uh, and people, you know, being able to isolate themselves. I'm driving through New Albany, Ohio. It's a suburb just northeast of Columbus. Population, 
a little under 11,000. They actually have fox hunts out in this area. They have uh, equestrian shows, polo matches. I'm with Bob Fitrakis, editor of the independent newspaper Columbus Free Press. Moved down to Columbus in 1987. Uh, I've been a reporter in Columbus for 28 years. I was an investigative reporter for Columbus Alive from 1996 to 2003. When I first came to town, was interested in politics. So as part of that process, uh, you sort of learn uh, who you have to know in this town to do well. And the one person you needed to know who had the most power, the most juice, was Les Wexner. Did you see that building? The Ohio State University Wexner. Yeah, because all the medical centers he's got his uh, name on. OSU Wexner Medical Center. Wexner Center for the Arts. If you look around the town, there's probably more buildings with the name Wexner on it than any person in, in central Ohio. For lack of a better term, New Albany is the city that Wexner built. It's pristine, recently named the number one suburb in America by Business Insider. The city's website trumpets that the median household income of New Albany is $187,000. These are custom-built Georgian brick homes for people with a lot of money. And there'll be some cheaper homes around, but those will still cost, you know, three-quarters of a million uh, dollars. And uh, the people that move there move there, you know, because of his prestige and and the exclusiveness uh, of, you know, the town, which, you know, was usually referred to as Wexley. And the largest estate of them all, situated right between two very exclusive golf clubs, is Wexner's property. Well, Wexner's estate, uh, in many ways, uh, I think is more in the tradition of the uh, uh, royals, uh, aristocrats, barons and dukes uh, of England. Right. Uh, You've got lush manufactured gardens. You've got, you know, tennis courts. You've got a massive pool and you've got so many, you know, fabulous uh, buildings. It looks like a a small British village. Wexner's property is nothing if not private. And all along the rows of fences surrounding the land are reminders of his security. And this appears to be the main entrance. Oh, this is, yeah, this is the guardhouse. This is the guardhouse, okay. And this road goes directly up to Wexner's property, actually to the home area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is uh, how you can drive in and go past security. I'm surprised they're not out here already. Can you see the camera? Yeah, I can see cameras. Yeah, we can see a bunch of cameras. Wow, that's that's amazing that there's that sign that says it's canine patrol. If you wanted to see what the estate really looks like, you'd have to fly over it. Uh, you can't see anything really that extends into the property. Um, it's, it's just hills of grass and lined with trees, and you can see the different... And really a forest to your right now. I mean, you'd never know. Really large enough uh, to have its own zip code. Leslie H. Wexner is the 82-year-old head of L Brands, a Fortune 500 retailer with $13 billion in revenue annually. And to understand 
how he came to build his own city, you first have to understand how he built his empire. Now we have about 4,000 stores, uh, offices uh, all over the world. That's Wexner speaking in 2009 at Harvard University's Center for Public Leadership about how he grew his business. Les Wexner started out small. He's a local who grew up in Dayton and graduated from Ohio State University before he went to work in his parents' clothing shop. And in his own recollection, times were tough. I was raised in a, the kind of a uh, family where I kind of had to work my way through grade school and high school and college. He'd eventually set out on his own in 1963, launching his first business with $5,000 he says he borrowed from his aunt. In 2017, in an interview with the American Academy of Achievement, he says the idea was simple. His store would sell a range of products, the ones he knew were selling best at the family store, real closet staples, and he'd call it... The Limited, because I had limited assets. (laughs) People thought it was a terrible name. They said, it sounds like a train, and when is the Limited leaving town? And I said, no, no, it's a... It describes the assortment, and it's a romantic name. What started out as a small local operation quickly grew. His growth atop the Limited was also a function of the expansion of what, for want of a better term, is the retail shopping experience. He really caught the growth of outdoor and indoor malls and mall culture. ABC News contributor Roddy Boyd is an investigative financial journalist and founder of the Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation. You'd be hard-pressed for the 1970s, 80s, through even 2005 or 6 to find uh, a major American mall without at least several stores that were under the Limited's umbrella. He's been described as the leading, you know, uh, female clothes retailer in America. And the Limited grew and grew, eventually encompassing some top brands under its umbrella. Abercrombie and Fitch, Bendel's, Bath and Body Works, and uh, Victoria's Secrets. But one of Wexner's biggest successes was the 1980s takeover of a small lingerie company for just $1 million and turning it into the world's flagship brand. Any mall of any note uh, is going to have a Victoria's Secret. Starting in about 1980, the Limited's growth, which was always pretty impressive, just takes off. I mean, it acquires and launches a series of brands that that really catapulted this company from a cornerstone of the average American mall to a global retailing powerhouse. And in 82... The company acquires Victoria's Secret. And the stores were just the beginning. Soon, there was a catalog, and then the fashion shows, and the Victoria's Secret model was born. The iconic fashion show taking place in New York City after a stint in London last year. The fashion world's current girl. Wow, the you know, bring in the supermodels that are going to, you know, model the lingerie for Victoria's Secrets and the whole notion that you would have a fashion show every year, you know, for lingerie. And, you know, you put out these uh, uh, magazines that are, you know, 
enticing uh, for people to look at. And a lot of that is uh, really marketing uh, genius. You're just expecting, you know, those lingeries from uh, Victoria's Secrets is going to change your love life and change your relationship and, uh, you know, your marketing dreams. And as The Limited and its companies continued to grow, so too did Wexner's wealth. Today, Forbes estimates Wexner to be worth $4.5 billion. And as Wexner's wealth grew, he was not only able to build his dream home, he chose to build his dream city. Wexner did something spectacularly unusual in this time period of the late 80s, early 90s, in that he begins to develop his dream town. And that sounds like a joke to most people who would do that online in a Sims-type game. He did it in real life. New Albany, as we know it today, began in the mid-1980s when Wexner said to his business partner, Jack, I want to build a house in the country. Uh, One of his development partners, Jack uh, Kessler, and he are supposedly out and seeing this beautiful land and... uh, Thinking about stuff like, you know, when you're down in Louisville, uh, uh, Kentucky, Horseland, you, you know, you see all these white picket fences and he sort of looks out all this land and it seems to be a reflection of, you know, Kentucky horse country and why can't you have the landed gentry that loves horses in the suburbs of Columbus. When Wexner came here, and saw it, he realized that he could recreate virtually whatever he wanted, you know, with, with so much land. But building his dream city would take a lot of work. In the late 1980s, New Albany wasn't much more than farms and a few hundred residents. Yeah, you would have snoozed through New Albany prior to Wexner. Uh, there wouldn't have been any of these buildings uh, here And you would have never known uh, where you were other than uh, you went by some sleepy little town that no one seemed to care about. To build his dream city, Wexner would need help. In hundreds of pages of real estate transactions and property records reviewed by ABC, you see a lot of recurring names in the formative years of New Albany. There were Wexner's attorneys who incorporated numerous companies that were used to purchase land And there was also a man named Harold Levin. Yeah, Wexner didn't do the development of New Albany alone. He'd had a lot of help with his longtime advisors, Stanley Schwartz, who was actually a neighbor of Wexner's in in Columbus for many years, uh, as well as Harold Levin, who was his personal financial advisor, for nearly a decade prior to Epstein's arrival. Harold Levin's name can be seen scrawled on dozens of corporation records and land deals on behalf of Wexner throughout the 1980s. In fact, in 1985, Wexner gave Levin a power of attorney so that he could oversee property that was owned by one of Wexner's companies. But Levin also played a role in managing Wexner's personal finances. The primary entity that Wexner's personal 
fortune was housed in is is Wexner Investment Company. He ran Wexner Investment Company for almost eight years prior to Epstein's arrival. But as the 1980s came to a close, Harold's name disappears. And in its place, the name of someone who would play an even more significant role in Wexner's personal financial life. That person was Jeffrey Epstein. By early 1990, however, Epstein takes over all of Levin's roles. According to a letter written by Wexner in 2019, he says he met Epstein through, quote, friends who vouched for and recommended him as a knowledgeable financial professional. That friend was reportedly Bob Meister, an insurance tycoon. Who felt uh, that Epstein was brilliant uh, and uh, wanted to introduce him to very prominent people. You know, Epstein created his own mythology that he only wanted to work with uh, billionaires. And here was an actual billionaire. You know, you just had the richest person in Ohio, uh, you know, be introduced to you. Wexner says through friends' recommendations, Epstein's professional and personal connections, as well as his own early meetings with Epstein, Wexner believed he could trust Epstein as a personal financial advisor. And he did. In fact, he would come to trust Epstein so much that in July of 1991, he also gave Epstein a power of attorney. But unlike the one that Harold Levin had, Epstein's was much more powerful. I'm holding in my hands a durable power of attorney, which gives uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, the power uh, really over Wexner's money uh, and real estate. But it also uh, gives Epstein power to conduct all business, uh, all money, all banking, all real estate for uh, one of the richest men in the world. Yeah, Epstein's really managing uh, Mr. Wexner's billions. I mean, this gives Epstein tremendous power. With that power of attorney, Epstein would assist in the building and growth of New Albany in the early 1990s. For a time, Epstein and Wexner controlled two companies that served as partners in the New Albany company. Anything done for a lot of years in New Albany was purely a function of the New Albany company. The New Albany company would oversee the development of Wexner's dream city. Responsible for laying down the roads, you know, developing the houses, uh, creating a commercial district and donated land, uh, you know, for things like ball fields, uh, churches, synagogues. I mean, they were responsible for what houses looked like, where they were built. So now you're seeing the uh, real white picket fences. It is the mark of Wexner. And there's a sign for the southern limit of uh, New Albany, right there on Moors. Les Wexner constructed as an architect, uh, as the money man, created an exclusive town uh, for the top 1% from scratch. He is New Albany. That's why they call it Wexley. It's the premier upper-class uh, community uh, in Ohio and one of the premier places in the nation. 
Epstein's signature can be seen on real estate documents, tax filings, and corporation records connected to Wexner, and that would continue throughout the 1990s. And during that time, Epstein starts to acquire luxury properties all over the world. Leslie Wexner is very clearly the most important individual that ever crossed paths with with Jeffrey Epstein. He really hit the jackpot. In 1990, he purchased his home in Palm Beach, Florida for two and a half million dollars. By 1991, he bought his first private plane and had at least one full-time pilot working for him. And just two years after that, he'd finalized the purchase of that 10,000-square-foot house adjacent to Wexner's estate in New Albany for $3.5 million. He buys a spectacular nearly 11,000-square-foot mansion on several acres uh, nearby Wexner with 20-plus rooms, a pool, and Epstein moves in. This is the same home where artist Maria Farmer would later say in a lawsuit that Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell sexually assaulted her in 1996. But despite having homes in multiple states, Epstein's true home was still New York, and he'd waste no time upgrading his life there as well. In the mid-1980s, Epstein was running his own financial consulting firm out of a small apartment in Manhattan. By the late 1980s, early 90s, you may recall he'd left Towers Financial with Stephen Hoffenberg, claiming that Epstein left with sums of money. But it wasn't until 1992, after three years working for Wexner, that he moved out of his one-bedroom apartment and took over a five-story townhouse on East 69th Street. He starts having this vast change in his lifestyle that involves a uh, renting the former Iranian consul general residence on uh, 69th Street, palatial, beautiful home. Epstein's lease on the building in 1992 was $12,000 a month. And while it was nice enough for a foreign diplomat, his tenure would be short-lived. That's because by early 1996, after just four years, he was moving into what can only be described as a palatial mansion just a few blocks away. And then in 1996, he takes full possession of 9 East 71st Street, the largest townhome in Manhattan, which is now valued, about, valued at $77 million. The home on 9 East 71st Street is 18,000 square feet, nestled between Manhattan's 5th and Madison Avenues and was originally purchased by Les Wexner in 1989. But when news reports about the building were published in the mid-1990s... The December 1995 cover of Architectural Digest puts Les Wexner's uh, massive townhouse, some describe as the largest single residence in New York City, on the cover. Epstein tells the Times at the time that... I live here, Wes doesn't, I own it. Though that wasn't really the case. Property records show that in 1989, the home was purchased by a company called 9 East 71st Street Corporation, which was owned by Les Wexner. Epstein wouldn't come to own the property until 1998. That's when a Wexner family spokesperson tells ABC News that Wexner sold his stake in 9 East 71st Street Corporation 
to a company controlled by Epstein for $20 million. But as financial investigative journalist Roddy Boyd puts it, Regardless of who owned this remarkable property, from late 95, early 96, to the naked eye, it's Epstein who's benefiting from living there, who's hosting people, throwing parties, uh, not shy about letting people know that he owns it. So it's obvious that he accrued all the benefits of the property from this relationship. And this causes many people, including myself, to say, what is this relationship? Who is this guy? The roughly six years between when Epstein leaves Towers Financial and when he moves into the mansion on 71st Street are remarkable years for Epstein, as his wealth appears to grow exponentially. And we've poured over thousands of pages of government filings during our investigation that may help explain how this happened. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Epstein's role in Les Wexner's life was more than just assisting in the growth of New Albany. Epstein takes over managing Wexner's personal finances. In 1989, Epstein's name first appears on IRS forms for one of Wexner's charities. Once again, financial investigative journalist and ABC News contributor Roddy Boyd. In 1989, uh, we first get documentary evidence of Jeffrey Epstein's emerging role within the Wexner empire. He shows up in the Wexner Foundation Form 990, which is sort of like the charity's annual report. 
uh, listing its revenues and expenditures and grants. In that document, Epstein is listed as the bookkeeper, but he would come to do far more than just keep the books. He quickly becomes listed as a trustee, secretary, or executive of a host of trusts and charitable foundations linked to Wexner. One is called Health and Science Interests. Another one is called Arts Interests. And another one is Heritage Interests. And then within those, he added a few more. Our investigation found nearly a dozen trusts connected to Wexner that had Epstein listed as the trustee, which means he was in charge of managing the assets. And we found that these trusts and the Wexner foundations they supported were funded with large chunks of stock in Wexner's company, The Limited. Criminologist and ABC News contributor Tom Volsho. And then the trustee of the trust, who is Mr. Epstein, proceeds to then sell it mostly through the New York Stock Exchange, but sometimes in private transactions. In one case... As Epstein can be heard saying in tapes shared with ABC News by journalist David Bank, he said, quote, I don't tell Wexner what sweaters to buy. He doesn't tell me when to buy or sell stock. And in reviewing records from the SEC and the National Archives, we found that between 1991 and 2006, the year before Wexner would revoke Epstein's power of attorney, Epstein sold a lot of stock. More than $1.3 billion of limited stock held by these trusts and other Wexner-related entities. He was in charge of billions of dollars of stock sales and allocating those pools of cash to the various charities. And as we've tracked all these stock sales, a potential pattern seems to emerge. Epstein selling off large chunks of limited stock for various Wexner trusts and shortly after making large purchases for himself. In 1992, as trustee, he sold off $32 million worth of limited stock. Three months later, he buys his $3.5 million home next to Wexner's estate in New Albany. And just four months after that, he picks up a huge thousands of acre plot of land and builds uh, a ranch on it, Zorro Ranch in New Mexico. And the potential pattern seems to continue for most of the 1990s. We see him liquidating stock on behalf of these trusts, then remodel his Palm Beach home, purchase planes, and in 1998, after selling more than $220 million in stock, less than three weeks after the final sale, he makes one of his most lavish purchases yet, his own private island. He actually buys a virgin island. He goes from living in a one-bedroom apartment to living like he's a Turkish pasha, you know, or European landed gentry. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Epstein is working for a billionaire. Wouldn't he be making a lot of money? And while that's likely the case, the lifestyle he was leading was extraordinary for a financial advisor with one primary client, even if that client was Les Wexner. So what do our financial experts make of all this? With power of attorney, I believe that Epstein probably converted some of Mr. Wexner's assets into his own uses. And when we follow the money into the 2000s, we see evidence of how Epstein may have done that. 
If you look at uh, Epstein's charities in the early 2000s, the COUQ Foundation that Epstein ran out of the uh, Virgin Islands, it receives um, an infusion of stock from Wexner's other charitable fund. And it was um, $11 million of limited to stock. And then Epstein promptly sells the stock for $13 million. There are even two examples where we see donations from Wexner's foundations into Epstein's foundations. I mean, there's even a $10 million grant from a Wexner foundation to a foundation that Epstein had set up for ostensibly charitable purposes in 2003. So, I mean, these are busy, busy times for Epstein. One of the things that, uh, uh, that I just share with you is, uh, and maybe this, uh, you could relate to this uh, in a positive way, but at some point in your life, we are all betrayed by friends. Not until 2019, following Jeffrey Epstein's second arrest, did Les Wexner address his relationship with Epstein during a meeting with investors in his company, claiming that he cut ties with Epstein more than a decade ago after he found out he was duped by the man he let take financial control of his personal fortune. Being taken advantage of by someone who was uh, so sick, so cunning, uh, so depraved, um, is, uh, is, is something that I'm embarrassed that I was even close to, but uh, that is in the past. And in August 2019, Wexner penned a letter to the members of his foundation claiming that Epstein had misappropriated, quote, vast sums of money from him. Wexner disclosed that he too was a victim of Epstein's machinations and claimed to be owed vast sums of money that Epstein had stolen from he and his family. Wexner says they learned about the missing money in 2007, during the time that Epstein was under investigation in Florida. So Wexner revoked the power of attorney and took the management of his personal finances and affairs away from Epstein. And in his letter, Wexner also says that Epstein later repaid him $46 million in assets that represented a portion of that missing money. Mr. Epstein, on one of the tax returns for his foundation, um, COUQ, in 2007, um, remits uh, about $46 million worth of stock to a foundation run by Mr. Wexner's spouse, Abigail Wexner. But the question remains, how much was that vast sum of money. How much did Epstein misappropriate? It's now 12 years after Wexner claims he discovered Epstein had stolen money from him and his family. But in his public statements, Wexner has never said how much. And despite our asking, his spokespeople would not provide a number for the amount of money he believes is missing. While in control of Wexner's personal fortune, Epstein was unquestionably living an extraordinary life. Private jets, his own private island, and a bank account with no limits. It was clear Epstein could live whatever kind of life he wanted. And it was also clear that during this time, some of the earliest allegations of sexual abuse would be made. As we've seen, Epstein used his connection to Wexner to enrich himself. 
But women have also told us that he used it to prey on girls and young women. In April of 1997, a good friend of mine was actually working in finance um, in Beverly Hills. This is Alicia Arden. 20 years ago, she was Alicia Velgos, 27 years old, with a burgeoning career as a model and actress in Los Angeles. She'd already done some TV roles, even making an appearance on Baywatch in 1994. I pretty much would consider that I was always struggling and wanting the next big break, in if that would be like a big uh, modeling job in a catalog or a TV show or film. In 1997, Alicia says she got a call from her friend who told her about what Alicia thought might just be a big break, an opportunity to appear in the Victoria's Secret catalog. It would have been a, a huge break. I didn't know, uh, you know, how to go about getting in something like that. Alicia says her friend had just had a business meeting with Jeffrey Epstein at the Beverly Hills Hotel, as she'd been hoping that he would invest in her financial firm. And during the conversation, Alicia says that Epstein brought up Victoria's Secret. He was talking to her about actually modeling for Victoria's Secrets. She said, I don't want to model, but if you are looking for girls that would like to be a model, you should meet my friend Alicia. He had told um, my friend he had ties to get girls in the Victoria's Secrets catalog. She had told me, you should call this guy, Jeffrey Epstein. He could get you some work in the Victoria's Secrets catalog. And that's what I said. Okay. And I called him. This sounds familiar, right? A year before Alicia would meet Epstein, Maria Farmer, the New York artist we heard from in episode two, says that she was told by Epstein's one-time girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, more than once that Epstein was a model scout for Victoria's Secret. And so I was in full view of the front door, and Ghislaine would come and go, and there was always a bustle in the house when I would get there. And she was usually like going shopping or often saying, I have to go get girls for Jeffrey. I have to go get girls. And I would say, what do you mean you have to get girls for Jeffrey? And she said, well, Maria, I have to do this all day long. It's my job. I work for Les Wexner and I'm picking out the Victoria's Secret models. She made absolute, I mean, that was a hundred percent. She made it clear. She worked for Les Wexner. Jeffrey worked for Les Wexner and they were just acquiring models for Victoria's Secret. Alicia says by the time she called Epstein, he was already back in New York, and she says she was told to send him some photos. Shortly after they arrived, the phone rang. He called me right after he saw my pictures and said, I'm going to have my secretary arrange a meeting. And she said, would you like to meet Jeffrey Epstein? He's coming in town. And so I said I would. So she called me to arrange a time in the afternoon or the evening. She was told to meet Epstein at the Shutters Hotel in Santa Monica, a luxurious beach resort with direct views of the Pacific, putting aside her concerns about an unusual audition process. Well, I had reservations about going over and meeting him in a hotel room because it really doesn't happen. It's a professional environment that I've always gone in, casting agencies and legitimate auditions and uh, legitimate venues. But Alicia was willing to take a chance. I wanted the Victoria's Secrets catalog. I was really wanting to get into that, and I thought 
100%, I have a great chance of getting at least maybe one picture. Alicia says she goes to the hotel room and finds Epstein casually dressed. He had on a sweatpants. He was barefoot and he had a USA sweatshirt on. And he was over in the kitchen area. I went over there to give him my book. And I said, I would love a photo in the Victoria's Secrets. He said, "Okay, well, let me see your book and all your pictures and let me see what I can do. She says Epstein started to study her. He was kind of looking at me and saying, I don't know, you might be, I don't know, about about your hips. I mean, maybe you need to see that. So he had me walk over to him closer. And then actually he goes, well, let me see, let me see underneath your top. Can you pick up your blouse and let me see your abs and your stomach and your breasts? Then he began assisting me in taking off my top and then pushing up my skirt to evaluate my body. Then I thought, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And and then he was putting his hands on my hips and my buttocks and saying, let me manhandle you. Let me, he said the word manhandle. So I got got extremely terrified of that. Alicia started thinking how she could get out of the room. I thought things could become unsafe. I didn't want to be attacked or raped. So I thought, I have to get my portfolio and I have to leave because this is not going well. And so I collected my portfolio and I wanted to run out of the room. He acted annoyed and then that I wasn't staying there. I was in there thinking that was a legal, reputable casting. I never for once thought that he didn't work for the brand. I always thought that he worked for Victoria's Secret. Epstein's encounter with Alicia Arden was not the only time he would allegedly hold himself out as a recruiter for Victoria's Secret. We've reached out to L Brands to ask if Epstein or Glenn Maxwell were ever model scouts for the company, but representatives haven't provided a response. But last year, Elbrands told Business Insider that it had hired an outside law firm to review Epstein's relationship with the company and that it doesn't believe he was ever an employee or authorized representative of the company. We have also attempted to reach Galen Maxwell about Maria Farmer's allegations, but she has not responded to requests for comment. Alicia says she decided to go to the police, and just like Maria Farmer, Alicia was among the first to report Epstein to authorities for abusive behavior. Once again, journalist Bob Fertrakis. This is the police report filed on May 20th, 1997 with the Santa Monica Police Department from Alicia Arden. Alicia goes to the Santa Monica Police Department and files a report of sexual battery against Jeffrey Epstein. The report, and I'm quoting from, said that once inside the hotel room with Epstein, she was unsure of whether she was safe because although she wanted to land the job. The report describes Alicia sending her photos to Epstein, him asking to meet with her, and then her being assaulted inside the hotel room. And also like Maria Farmer. I was telling the truth and they did nothing about it. Alicia says nothing happened. No one contacted me right after. No one's contacted me. But this could have all been stopped if this police officer would have called me or put an investigation or something on him. 
but nobody did anything in 1997 and all of this could have been stopped and but I couldn't help any of the girl of the girls that I'm hearing that were raped at 14 and 15 years old so I would have loved to have helped them if the police would have just called me or did something because it could have maybe stopped these girls that I'm hearing about from being raped at 15 I couldn't even imagine that I couldn't even imagine that We reached out to the Santa Monica Police Department to ask about Alicia's report, but did not receive a response. In the present, uh, everyone has to feel enormous regret uh, for the advantage uh, that was taken of, uh, of so many young women. And uh, that's just unexplainable, abhorrent behavior. And uh, clearly... Uh, is something we, we, we all uh, would condemn. Uh, Wexner maintains he knew nothing about Epstein's sex crimes prior to the investigation in Florida in 2007. And he said in the letter to his foundation that Epstein, quote, vehemently denied the allegations to him. But as we've mentioned, shortly after Wexner says he discovered that Epstein had misappropriated money, he severed ties with him. Wexner has maintained that he, too, is a victim of Epstein's, and he's confirmed that Epstein stole vast sums of money from him, over $46 million. So the question remains, why didn't Les Wexner call the police back in 2007? Wexner reportedly turned over documents to authorities following Epstein's arrest in 2019, But what about in 2007, when he first discovered the missing money? We asked Wexner's spokespeople about this, but they declined to comment, only directing us to Wexner's previous letter to his foundation. Epstein's extraordinary wealth is only one piece of the puzzle, though. Money bought Epstein his homes and planes. It allowed him to pay the young girls that he abused, and it also afforded him some of the best attorneys that money can buy. But Epstein's social connections were also extraordinary, and in the 1990s, his Rolodex grows along with his bank accounts, and there is one key person who helped him go from being a wealthy man to a powerful man. So Guillen was 100% the lady of the house at Jeffries. He made that very clear. There was never a doubt about that. We knew who was in charge, and it was Guillen. Guillen would say, I have all these connections. Jeffrey has all this money. Together, we're golden. We're just the best couple. We have so much fun. I wish he didn't cheat on me, but he does. Very odd. You know, very odd. It clearly was not love. I believe that her relationship with Epstein was purely transactional. He was giving her the finances she needed and the lifestyle. And, you know, I mean, this sort of... This idea about Epstein collecting people, I think to a certain extent, Ghislaine opened her Rolodex and allowed him to sort of, you know, kind of like take his pick. That's next time on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard. Produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. 
Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, and Chris Francescani. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Hallie Frager, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, and Caroline Highland. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is our Senior Executive Producer. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.